Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and really excited about speaking with our guest today. We're going to talk about why is teen chronic pain up 800%. And so our our, our guest today is Dr. David Hanscom. He's an MD. He's uh, talking about while he's revealing t- uh, teenage chronic emotional and physical pain is robbing America of its future, having risen more than 800% in the last 10 years. Uh, that's new news to me, so I really want to dive into that. And he's going to talk about how we can overcome that. So that's good news for kids because, I mean, they're our future. And if they're dealing with chronic pain at such an early age, they're uh, it would be a dim view if we didn't have any solutions. That's why we have this orthopedic spine surgeon. He actually quit his surgical practice to teach patients and medical practitioners how to solve chronic pain. His most recent book is Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And he also is the author of Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. David Hanscom to the podcast. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, I'm glad you could make it. And before we get started, I do want to get your opinion over the past week of tons of memes. Of course, we're looking at uh, being lighthearted about dealing with the coronavirus and everything that's very serious. But one one meme that really stood out to me was uh, they were showing all the uh, aisles that were empty with toilet paper and cereal and all that. And over in the vitamin section, everything was stocked to the gills. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to get your take. I don't know if you've ever seen that meme or are we, I think you're going to help us with programming and moving forward in the right direction and overcoming anxiety. Right. I mean, what I'd like to talk about as this process evolves, I mean, my one message to the audience here today is that anxiety is not a psychological issue. It's a neurophysiological response to a stress or a threat and the problem, the problem is why we're having so much anxiety in our society is that medicine has completely missed the diagnosis. They're ignoring the data. And anxiety is simply the elevation of stress chemicals, and that is it. It is not a psychological response. The reason why that's so critical is that the unconscious survival response processes about 11 million bits of information per second. Some people say as high as 20 million. And then the, guess how much the conscious brain processes? 40. Wow. So you have 11 million to 40 ratio, and every living creature has some type of survival response, which means your autonomic nervous system goes on fire, your body chemistry changes, your immune system changes, everything changes when you're under an acute threat. That response, again, processes between 11 to 20 million bits of information per second. It is not subject to rational control, and if you didn't have anxiety, you live about two minutes at the most because you wouldn't breathe your heart rate Mm -hmm. would not be regulated. You would not constrict or dilate your pupils. I cannot talk to you unless my brain is automatically forming words and my mouth changes, my tongue changes, my breath changes. So I can talk to you all that's unconscious. So again, you have this massive, powerful survival response that allows us to live. Again, every living creature has this response. So we gravitate towards rewards and avoid danger. The species who didn't do that simply didn't survive. And so somehow in modern medicine, it's become a psychological diagnosis and it's physiological. That's why it's such a problem. We're simply treating it with the wrong paradigm, which tragic, paradoxical, and also promising is that the solution is so simple. Once you get the diagnosis correct, it's an extraordinarily simple fix. 
Wow. How's that for, how's that for an introduction? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it for an introduction. I guess the pushback, uh, just you let me know, because you've probably seen both sides of the fence. If it's a quick response or a quick review, then I don't need you as a, as a client for the rest of your life where I don't have to give you medication. Right. That's the problem. I mean, honestly, the, the industry of medicine hates me. I've been, they've tried to fire me three or four times. I finally quit. And the reason why I quit, because I'm watching, essentially we're doing, people saying, well, why is North Peak Surgeon talking about anxiety? So first of all, I went to one of the top spine fellowships in the world. In one day, I went from no anxiety. I was absolutely fearless having panic attacks in one day. I thought it was psychological. I actually went into counseling, therapy, all sorts of stuff to try to fix this thing, and it just got worse with time. It turns out that that adrenaline drive that made me, quote, successful took me right down the other side. So I went from no anxiety to a panic, panic attack in 10 minutes. Once I had that first panic attack, I could not put the genie back in the bottle. It was unbelievable. So it turns out that when you, one of the ways that we deal with anxiety is we suppress it, and to become a major spine surgeon, you become a master at suppressing incredible anxiety. When it exploded, it was like the lid blowing off of a pressure cooker. It just exploded. And then the other thing that happens when you're under sustained levels of stress chemicals is that it affects every organ in your body. And what happens is over 30 different physical symptoms that you have from sustained levels of stress chemicals. So acute stress, the body's acute stress response is critical. When it becomes chronic stress, that's when people get sick. So I had 17 of these symptoms at the same time for over 15 years. Wow. (laughs) I'm trying to imagine a type A person and usually that's part of the deal. I mean, you deal with anxiety or overcoming that just to make your top peak potential, but you found a way around being a top earner or top uh, top person in your field without dealing with anxiety or stress. No, I, I think in the rule, I think that what happens to get there or just masters of suppressing it, and we can talk about this on this podcast or later podcast, but all of us have anxiety. In other words, every living creature has anxiety to survive. What the neuroscience shows is that thoughts and concepts go to the same part of the brain as a physical threat, but humans can't escape their thoughts. Either suppress them, experience them, or try to mask them, hence the opioid epidemic, and none of those work. So what happens is that you cannot escape your thoughts. It goes to the similar part of the brain as a physical threat. Each human being is subjected to sustained levels of stress chemicals, and people get sick. And then what happens if you come from a chaotic background, from a, an abusive childhood, have you heard of the ACE scores by chance, adverse childhood experiences? Okay, a study in 1995 showing that if you have, they, they list 10 variables, which includes physical, sexual, emotional abuse, parent in prison, parent on drugs, etc. It's just a checklist. Only 30% of Americans have a normal childhood. That's not very good. Mm-hmm. If your A score was three or higher, you had double chance of heart disease, suicide, hypertension, depression. It was unbelievable, and it's consistent. That data has been around for about 20 years and just now coming into mainstream medicine. But what happens is that when you're programmed by a chaotic past, everything in, everything in the present seems more dangerous because you, pro- you, you were raised in a situation that was more dangerous. Mm-hmm. So we, we can go back, we can tip into the topic of teenage chronic pain is that two or three households have quite a bit of chaos in them. 
half of those have a lot of chaos in them, just flat out abusive. Then you come out into the world from your home, which is dangerous. So instead of looking at the world as nurturing and safe, you look at the world as threatening and chaotic, which was my story. I had a horrible childhood. So anytime you're anxious or frustrated, something in the present, you've been trained to say, well, something's dangerous now because of my past. If you come from a chaotic background, more things in the present seem like they're dangerous, whether they're dangerous or not. So childhood trauma has a tremendous effect on people's anxiety. So just by the pure numbers of ongoing abuse, which seems to keep climbing, by the way, again, we're treating anxiety psychologically instead of physiologically, um, it's going to rise. And by the way, that data is old data. So that was about 10 years old. That the, It was over a seven-year period of time that the incidence of teenage chronic pain had gone up 800%. This is a 2014 paper out of Indianapolis. I gave a lecture at a high school in Seattle, and 350 out of the 1,500 high school students were on medications for chronic diseases. Mm. Wow. So we can talk about the causes. I can just listen really briefly, because I think the solution is actually more helpful than the causes. But the bottom line is that, again, anxiety is just the sensation generated by elevated stress chemicals. Mm-hmm. It's in response to an ongoing threat, basically your thoughts. Remember, my cat has anxiety too, but she doesn't have a name for it. Plus, she doesn't have consciousness to keep the stress chemicals elevated. When she escapes the danger, she lays down and goes, she goes to sleep. Whereas a human lays down after they've been threatened by their boss or whatever, of course, your mind keeps racing. Those racing thoughts go to the same part of the brain as a physical threat. The research term for that is called URTs unpleasant, repetitive thoughts. And as you well know, all of us have those. And you can't get rid of them. Your anxiety stays elevated again. It's just a sensation generated by elevated stress chemicals. For instance, if you're lying on the beach in the sun, falling asleep, you're full of oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and the GABA drugs, which are like Valium, how do you feel? Phenomenal. Pretty relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. So you wouldn't call relaxed a diagnosis, right? Right. So if you're laying there on the same beach and you're thinking about your boss or your kid in trouble or something in the family that was unpleasant, then you're full of adrenaline, cortisol, histamine, cytokines. How do you feel? Mm, Not enjoying that beach experience. No, you feel anxious, agitated, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. So, again, relax is not a diagnosis. Anxiety is not a diagnosis. It's a description of your body's chemical state. Mm. So I'd like to jump in the solution really quickly, then we can go expand back into the realities of day-to-day life. But the, I am, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question that essentially nobody gets the answer to, but it's just for teaching purposes. So does it make sense to you how anxiety is just a sensation generated by body's elevated stress chemicals? That makes sense to it you? Does. It does. Okay. So you can't, it's again, 11 million versus 40. It's not subject to rational control. Mm-hmm. Plus anxiety is a gift. Without it, none of us would even be here on this planet because we wouldn't mm-hmm. understand danger. Okay, so it's what you have. It's not who you are. And who you are is this conscious brain, which is how you get creative, relationships, language, all that comes from the conscious brain. So anxiety is your bodyguard, It's what you have. It's not who you are. If your identity gets mixed up with this anxiety response, it becomes your prison guard. Mm -hmm. So the first, so basically, 
the way you solve anxiety is that, okay, if anxiety represents elevated stress chemicals, the sensation generated by elevated stress chemicals, how do you decrease anxiety? Survey says. What's that? The survey says. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Okay, so the, the answer is really simple, is that you just simply decrease the stress chemicals. That's it. Okay. Now, the reason why it's such a critical answer and so simplistic is because there's infinite number of ways of actually doing that. Mm-hmm. So what this model does, it gives you the reason why you're doing it. Okay, so the first step is to separate from the reaction. In other words, get rid of the, get rid of the word anxiety out of your vocabulary completely. Mm-hmm. Just say my stress chemical, anytime you're agitated or upset, just point out that, okay, I'm linked to the past somehow. Something mm-hmm. says danger, whether the danger is real or not. And just say to yourself, my stress chemicals are elevated. That's it. So, you, so separating from the reaction is really critical. The second part of that separation is just visualize a large thermometer on the opposite wall. And the more agitated and upset you feel, just picture that thermometer going up. And then as you learn ways to drop it down, you just visualize it dropping back down. But get rid of the word anxiety completely out of your vocabulary. It doesn't help. Okay. Okay. That's the first step. So simply separating this chemical reaction from your identity, separating the response from who you are, Mm -hmm. that's number one. The second thing is there's two categories of lowering stress chemicals. One of them is is the direct methods, you know, mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, exercise, visualization. But one of them I like to do, I'll just, I call it active meditation. It's about three to five seconds, and we'll do it right now. You simply, okay. instead of being on racing thoughts, you just put your brain on a different sensation. So just as you're sitting there, just feel the back of your chair. Drop your shoulders. Take a little bit of a breath. That's it. Mm-hmm. Now, how did that feel? Oh, yeah, it brought me back to the present. Or brings yeah. me to so the present. So what happens, yeah, because when you're, what happens when you're on a different sensation, your mind really honestly can't multitask once you're in that different sensation, taste your food, feel the breeze, feel the door handle, feel the chair, listen to sounds, then you're connected to the present moment. So what you've done, you switch sensory input from these racing thoughts, which creates this chemical reaction, to a different sensation, which can be neutral or pleasant, doesn't matter. And what you've done, you've changed the input so the stress chemical response doesn't happen. So that's why meditation, mindfulness, visualization, that's why all these things work what's critical with this model is that once you understand why things work, in other words, if you're just meditating to decrease your anxiety, it doesn't really work. In other words, you're battling anxiety instead of actually just helping calm down the stress chemicals. And some days meditation works, some days it it doesn't. Or people say, well, I've been trying to meditate or practice for a while and it doesn't work. Well, by itself, it's probably not going to work as an adjunct to whatever else things you're doing. It's a huge, huge asset. So people don't connect to meditation. But what I like about the active meditations, three to five seconds on a different sensation, that, so again, just drop your shoulders for a second, take a little bit of a breath, that's it. We actually do this in surgery, we actually get a little bit agitated or frustrated, and we'll just drop our shoulders and go to light touch and feel. Instead of white knuckling the instruments, which happens when you're anxious or frustrated, we'd go to light touch, which is much safer and we just had a dramatic decrease in surgical, surgical complication rate using these tools right there in surgery. Mm-hmm. So again, reviewing the process, anxiety is a neurochemical reaction to a threat. Humans can, 
can't escape their thoughts. It's not subject to rational control, especially talk therapy. The way you decrease anxiety is simply first separate from the reaction, visualize the thermometer, get rid of the word anxiety. Then the direct means are what we just discussed as far as active meditation, meditation, mindfulness, exercise, etc., all decrease the stress chemicals. But the other way, which is critical, you can directly decrease stress chemicals on a day-to-day basis, but what's equally or more important is called neuroplasticity. Are you familiar with that term, neuroplasticity? I am. And so your brain, we didn't know this in medical school. I just read an article yesterday how little we knew back in the 1980s or so about the brain, but we thought the brain was static. We know we had no idea it changes every second. What you're doing is you're dampening the stress response. As you know, stress is inevitable, can't control it. What happens, you have a stress, you create a little bit of a space, and then you choose a more appropriate response. So instead of being stress, automatic survival response, which is powerful, you're going to dampen the reaction and go stress, a little bit of a space, then you have an alternate response, which is less reactive than the initial one. And you get lots of layers of this one. But the basic sequence in neuroplasticity is awareness. Become aware that you're triggered or upset. You do not want to suppress it. You create a little bit of a space, and then you redirect. Okay. So the way I talk about it is like learning another language. You're going to learn French by studying French and repetition. But in five years, when you can speak French, your brain changed. You now have a new brain. Right? Right, right. But you didn't learn French by trying to avoid English. Right. It, you know, French didn't just emerge. You actually had to practice that. So that's what neuroplasticity is all about. Same thing with chronic pain. People keep trying to fix their pain, fix their stress, fix their problems. But your attention's on the problem, not the solution. Same thing mm-hmm. with French versus English. If you want to learn French, you're not going to do it by trying to fix your English. In life in general, the default language is pain. It's, it's a protective mechanism. I'm going to use the default word is actually anxiety, which actually is the pain. Then instead of trying to fix that and solve it, you create a vision of what I call an enjoyable life. What do you want your life to look like? Who do you want in it? What do you want to do? How do you want to live it? Then with without the pain, you start moving forward towards this vision, and your brain starts to change. And so instead of trying to fix your pain all the time, which reinforces it, then you start moving forward into this vision of what you want your life to look like. And it's been unbelievable how people's nervousism calms down, anxiety drops, creativity comes back. And once people pop out of their pain pathways, again, the mental pain is a much bigger problem than the physical pain because you can't escape your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that this relentless anxiety starts to drop dramatically. Once it starts to drop, your creativity comes back. As your creativity and perspective comes back, then your brain really spans into the part of the brain that's well away from the pain circuits. Mm-hmm. So the key issue here is neuroplasticity. Your brain's going to develop where you place its attention, not fixing. So we are in a perfect example of today, what's happening today. And there's news stories of, oh, even if we get around this uh, current strain, we have to worry about, in the fall, and, and if it's a new strain. And so there's this ongoing anxiety of, of the future that it's not even here yet. So how would you approach the, the we're going to take anxiety away, but if we're going to release stress chemicals from standing in line with the scarcity mindset, how would you deal with today's situation? Okay, so this is 
tricky and paradoxical. So I don't want to minimize the impact of the thinking on our lives. Mm-hmm. This is a real situation. I happen to be house quarantined right now because I was exposed and got tested. So I do not have my test results back. So I'm personally right in the middle of this thing. And what doesn't work is positive thinking. And the reason for that is that positive thinking is just another way of suppressing negative thinking. And what happens is you suppress negative thoughts, it becomes stronger. We all know that's mm-hmm. called the White Bears Experiment back in 1987. So when you try not to think about something, not only do you think about it more, you think about it a lot more. There's a tremendous trampoline effect. So positive thinking and reinsurance absolutely doesn't work. There's a website post. There's two things I like to point out. One is a website post I wrote on my website, backincontrol.com, called Your Personal Brain Scanner. It's that even before this epidemic, if you start looking the way you look at life in general, say it's a nice day, you're relaxing, you're walking around the lake, your brain's going to look for trouble. Your brain is, your, the human body's main goal is to survive. I call it your personal brain scanner. So you can be walking around the lake, um, having a nice afternoon, and your mind goes to trouble at work or goes to an argument you had with your spouse. It's very hard to keep the brain calm because it's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to look for trouble all the time. So I call your personal brain scanner. That's number one. So you know, I wrote another website post, which is the essence of the solution. It's called the ring of fire. Is that we've already documented that anxiety and anger are important to survive. Without those, you would simply not survive. Mm-hmm. So what you don't want to do, you don't want to suppress the emotion. You don't want to accept it. Remember, anxiety is supposed to be so unpleasant that it forces you to take action to survive. So it's always going to be unpleasant. The key is to assimilate it, that life is dangerous. There's always going to be trouble. We're lucky to be alive. I mean, it's a miracle that we're alive in general. Nobody really understands how, with all the obstacles in this universe, how we're even alive on this planet at all. But in general, you understand that anxiety is part of life. So the ring of fire, if you just picture a circle, and the outer ring is a blue ring, of things we do as far as accomplishments, relationships, things that we do to feel good about ourselves is the blue ring. The red ring in the middle is is anxiety, frustration, and the in the survival reactions. Then the center is green, which is who you are, just being connected to who you are. What happened to me personally is that none of us like anxiety. We're not how to we're not taught how to process it. And so I became extraordinary staying in the blue ring to the point I didn't know the red ring even existed. Mm. As I started getting, as my whole being started to wear out around age 37, I started having anxiety reactions, panic attacks, started having other physical symptoms, went into a major depression, developed a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder. So I was completely stuck in the red ring with no way out. I didn't know what the center was. I, didn't, I was certainly not in the blue anymore. Eventually, I became so destroyed that I ended up in the center, the green ring, just by default. I had no place else to go. And it was there when I realized that there was no solution, there's no place to go, and I just sat there, literally. That's when I started to heal. So the key to the process is not positive thinking. It's assimilating anxiety in your, in your day-to-day life. As you quit fighting it and using keys to simply lower your stress chemicals, quit treating it psychologically, then it starts to drop down. So if you look at your worry patterns before the epidemic, they were there. Now it's more concrete, something to focus on, but the patterns are there on everybody. And I deal with, deal with this with my patients all the time, is that they feel better, they feel great. They'll call me three months later, and they're all triggered, and they're upset again. 
And what they've done, they've simply found something else to worry about. Because the, it's the worrying's the problem, it's not the situation. And I think you and I both know that if your peace of mind is dependent on your external circumstances, you're at the mercy of those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more like that than being a spine surgeon, which is maybe one of the most stressful tasks in the universe. And the stress isn't going to go away. You've heard, the, you've heard the choice that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm. And the suffering to me is a sustained chemical reaction, elevated stress chemicals, that causes the suffering that we call anxiety. Would so you also the, say... I'm sorry, go ahead. I have a question, I have a question about that, because it, when you were explaining that, it made sense with the uh, social isolation. Uh, one is for the you know, the viral aspect, but also uh, crowd, the mindset, the mindset of the crowd or the mob mentality. So if everyone is programmed on the chaos, they're not releasing the stress chemicals will make a bad situation worse. Yep. No, absolutely. Plus out of Boston, they showed that concepts get embedded in our brain the same way this chair does that I'm sitting in. It's the same thing. So I used Mm -hmm. to, when I rewrite my book, I used to say, look, thoughts are real because they create chemical reactions in your body, but they're not reality. It's actually not true. It turns out that your thoughts and concepts are your version of reality. So as individual version of reality, yours is completely different than mine. Then you have the cultural mindset, which you have that cultural reality that becomes, again, as real as the chair you're sitting in. So people take very concrete actions based on their concepts. But I think the key issue here is understand that anxiety is necessary the antidote to anxiety is control. When you lose control, you become angry and reactive to, in an effort to gain more control. So it turns out that anger and anxiety are the same thing. Anger is simply more stress chemicals. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so critical for society to figure this out quickly because what happens when you're angry is destructive, including self-destructive. Mm-hmm. And that's where teenagers are such a big problem as far as eating disorders, cutting, um, body image disorders, all sorts of stuff are happening in this very self-destructive stuff, but it's from anger. And what drives the mm-hmm. anger is the uncontrollable anxiety. And the reason why we have uncontrollable anxiety is because we're treating it psychologically. So I, if, you, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to maybe some more concrete aspects of the solution, um, how you get this started. Sure. Go for it. Okay. So we talked about, again, review. We're going to separate from the reaction. It's simply elevated stress chemicals. There's direct ways of lowering stress chemicals and also dampening the brain's response. So going back to the pandemic that we're dealing with right now, we have the stress, then you have a reaction to it, and move on. What doesn't work is positive thinking that, oh, everything's going to be fine, I'm going to be fine. Well, again, what you're doing is suppressing negative thoughts, which simply doesn't work. So the key is assimilating anxiety into your life. That's why I call it the ring of fire, is that you're in the center. If you want to take a new endeavor on, you still have to pass through that red ring to get to the outside. So what I was doing, I was... I don't like the word comfortable, but as you learn to simulate anxiety, is that if I'm in the center and when I'm trying a new project, it takes anxiety, new relationship, anxiety, new career challenge, anxiety. So it's part of day-to-day life. Once you, plus it's always going to be unpleasant again. So as you learn to assimilate it, it allows you to move forward with confidence, realizing, okay, I'm going to be anxious, I'm going to move forward. So with the pandemic, it's important to be smart about it, get the facts, take the precautions you need to take, you don't, have to get, you don't have to put your head in the sand by any means. But things like listening to the news and what's the next outbreak, et cetera, 
It just keeps you agitated, which keeps your stress chemicals elevated, which, by the way, is a very direct effect on your immune system, which actually compromises it. Yes. So the key is you come to the center, it actually changes your body's chemistry, it optimizes the immune system. So the way to deal with the pandemic is simply to connect to who you are, which optimizes your immune system, take the usual precautions, and then acknowledge the worry. And I'm going to give you some early steps that obviously we can't go over everything right now, but I have a website, backincontrol.com, which is four stages. It's sort of a lifetime set of practices, which gives you a framework of what to do. Everybody does it differently, but the first step is called expressive writing. And I just wrote a website post in psychology today to using expressive writing to help fight off the coronavirus. And they've documented, so what expressive writing is going to be write down your thoughts, tear them up. And you do that once or twice a day for 5, 10, 15 minutes, and we don't know why it works. Again, there's over a thousand research papers is that you can't escape your, I'm sorry, yeah, you can't escape your thoughts, but you can separate from them. Your thoughts are on the table. <clears throat> You're now separated from your thoughts by vision and feel. And then you tear them up for two reasons. One of them is, is that you're going to write with freedom, both positive and negative. Secondly, it's really critical not to analyze these things as issues. Because when you do that, it becomes part of your identity, which makes things worse. And so you're not writing to get rid of these thoughts, because there's trillions of them, but you're simply separating from them, writing with freedom. And then, remember, it's awareness separation reprogramming with neuroplasticity. So the writing does the awareness separation in one step. And again, just drop your shoulders for a second. Feel the back of your chair. You might hear my voice drop down just a little bit. And again, it's awareness separation with the writing. And then active meditation places your brain in something else. So it's awareness separation reprogramming or redirecting. So that's the simplest basic set of sequence is the expressive writing combined with active meditation is a great starting point. In fact, I don't see anybody really getting better without the expressive writing. I started a project years ago trying to actually get this pull into the school system right there in preschool first grade. I have many of my friends' kids doing this with a dramatic decrease in anxiety. And again, going back to the teenage anxiety problem is that, again, chronic pain is the mental pain is a bigger problem. You cannot escape your thoughts. Anxiety is relentless. And then you get physically sick based on the elevated body, body stress chemicals. So if we had started this most simple strategy right there in kindergarten first grade onwards it would just it would really it would just take teen anxiety out of the picture because you have it you use it and you just keep moving forward mm. and the thing was odd about this whole epidemic by the way i know there's people i i again i'm not trying to minimize the epidemic at all but you know flu still kills about a hundred thousand people a year in the united states alone between alcohol opioids and other drugs were about 150,000 people a year in other words there's about oh, 15,000 people that died just this month from drugs. So it's interesting that we're really hyped up about this, and appropriately so, but why aren't we hyped up about these other things also? I just wish they would publish the flu data alongside the coronavirus data, especially right. the opioid epidemic. So when you look at the opioid epidemic, you have 46,000 people dead from opioids, another 30,000 from different drugs. There's 88,000 people die a year from alcohol-related issues. So we don't have a drug epidemic. We have an anxiety epidemic because all those things are done to escape anxiety, right? Right. And the reason why I became so aware of anxiety as a spine surgeon standpoint is that, first of all, I had it myself tremendously. 
I did not understand how I came into it, how I came out of it. I found out the way I covered up anxiety was being, quote, fearless. I was, I was a master suppressing it. And when it exploded, it exploded. But it turns out that it's a huge problem in medicine in general. The physicians are very good about suppressing anxiety. We suppress it under the guise of perfectionism. We're always agitated about not being good enough. So we drive ourselves, drive ourselves. But what happens is a sensation of not being good enough to put yourself in a victim role, which actually covers up the feeling of anxiety. That's why I didn't feel it. It was there. I just didn't feel it. Mm-hmm. So once you acknowledge that, okay, I'm anxious. I'm a human being like everybody else. By acknowledging it, learning to process it, moving through it, making it part of your life, it starts losing its power. If you're fighting it, you've heard the term, what you resist will persist. From a neuroplasticity standpoint, it's a problem. I want to go back for a second because uh, you, you tackled a number of things, but two things that I do want to highlight is the expressive writing aspect. And so you had mentioned if we started in elementary school, which is one thing that sounds great, phenomenal, um, but there, is, there are those changes when you go through adolescence where you start caring more about how people think about you, whereas uh, uh, elementary school, you're still, like you said, with that neuroplasticity, the world's your oyster. I mean, you, that's where your creativity and everything shines. You know, uh, everyone, every parent has those refrigerators full of <laughs> creative aspects of their children. But that seems like it's turned off as a teenager. So how would you make that transition or not even make the transition, keep it, keep it um, on the same level or grow even higher from the elementary stage into adolescence with this expressive writing? Well, again, expressive writing is just the starting point. It's actually not the solution. So what happens with kids is simply write and learn how to relax, maybe just abbreviate in mindfulness. So as you get older, there's things called cognitive distortions. Um, with cognitive behavioral therapy, you recognize that a lot of the thoughts that are creating this chemical reaction are actually distortions. So it's a different process as you get older, that the writing never stops. It's never the solution. But for some reason, I've never seen anybody really get better with anxiety and other chronic pain syndromes without the writing. There's over a thousand research papers that document that it works. I have a book in front of me called Opening Up by Writing It Down by Dr. James Pennybaker and Dr. Joshua Smythe. And they started the research in the early 1980s. What's disturbing, <clears throat> it's an incredibly easy intervention. I, again, these research papers are excellent papers. But high school, college, medical school, residency, fellowship, private practice, psychiatry rotations, I never heard of the strategy. Mm. And again, deep, deep research on it. So it's perplexing and frustrating that it's not more out there. Then in my own process of horrible chronic pain, horrible anxiety, when I started the writing, within two weeks, things started to shift after 15 solid years. By six weeks, things were much better. And by six months, I was fine. It was unbelievable. That means after 15 solid years, being a physician, I had access to almost every treatment you can imagine. Nothing worked. But they've also shown, okay, there's no risk to the expressive writing. They've also documented that in chronic pain that every intervention that we do in chronic knee pain and back pain simply doesn't work. And so we're pretending to offer medical care when the reality is what, what the essence of healing is learning to feel safe, mm-hmm. which means a good doctor-patient relationship, which means you have to talk to your doctor. Mm-hmm. But as you feel safe, your body's full of oxytocin, growth hormone, dopamine, serotonin. So as you feel safe, it optimizes your body's chemistry, 
with a marked improvement in sense of well-being, but also physical function. And so right now in the business of medicine, we're going through people really quickly. It's an assembly, type, assembly line type approach. We're offering treatments that have been documented to be ineffective. The success rate of spine fusions for back pain is about 24%. And mm. I was watching three to five patients every week have an operation done that's been documented to not work. In fact, there's not one research paper that says it does work. And I'm watching hundreds and hundreds of patients go to pain-free with essentially no risk, self-directed. You don't need a pain clinic to do this. In fact, most of my patients, the vast, probably 95% of my patients have not seen a psychologist either. This is not a psychological issue. But I think psychologists can offer wisdom and support. So if I have access to them, I love to use them. But actually pulling yourself out of the hole to simply take some very mechanical things to do to calm down the nervous system. One strategy I like to highlight before we run out of time here is that, again, learning about pain is critical, understanding the role of anxiety, what it is, what it isn't, that mental pain is a bigger problem. Expressive writing is the starting point combined with the act of meditation. Sleep is huge. In fact, sleep is the number one thing we actually try to get solved in the first six or eight weeks of solving pain in general, including anxiety. But the final one, which is interesting in the first stage, is that we don't let people discuss their pain. In other words, if your attention's on your problems, that's where your brain's going to develop, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, if you're my patient, I say, look, when you walk out of the door of my office, you're simply never going to discuss your pain or medical care with anybody ever again except your health care providers. That mm-hmm. especially includes your family, colleagues, relatives, coworkers, anybody. Simply, when you walk out the store, simply not going to discuss your pain. Mm-hmm. Now, since the mental pain is as much a bigger problem than the physical pain, is that it says no complaining, no gossiping, no criticism, no unasked for advice. Simply be nice. Because again, as you again, it's not positive thinking, it's positive substitution. Is you make just an empirical decision that, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to complain. But I didn't realize it probably if you have chronic pain, it's understandable, and I did this myself, you talk about your pain all the time. You complain all the time. Nobody's helping me. You're blaming the medical profession. You're blaming people around you. You're blaming your employer who hurt you. So it turned out that in stage two, remember, it's awareness separation reprogramming. The forgiveness is a much more complex but critical part of the process because you become aware you're angry. Forgiveness is a separation. And then the reprogramming is play. Not obsessive play to distract yourself, but actually taking a curiosity, gracious mindset into your life so again, it's awareness separation with the forgiveness, and then play is the reprogramming tool, and then jumping way to the end of the story, the way you really reprogram is giving back, helping other people, the spiritual journey, getting perspective. So, but going back to the first basic starting point, the book is Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roman Potter Chronic Pain. The website's backincontrol.com. It's about a 90% self-directed process. Now, I encourage people just to jump in so reading the book's a book. It's just a book. It's just a framework. And then on the website, there's tools to actually learn to lower your body's stress chemicals. Because I repeat this again, is that the essence of healing is feeling safe. And how right. you feel safe is that you learn to regulate your body's chemistry from a stress profile to a play profile. And if you get control, and they're not very hard tools. So once you understand that link, that this is about the body's chemistry, that it's physiological, not psychological, things change dramatically. Let me ask you about wanting to feel safe, uh, because you brought that up uh, numerous times. And 
in today's environment, and you were talking about the doctor-patient relationship, sometimes the patient will defer to the doctor because the doctor has the expertise, and, the ex- and with the bedside manner, then the patient feels safe. So it could right. be a, a, uh, what do you call, a placebo or what have you, as long as the patient feels safe under the doctor's directive. And when we're talking, when you were talking about obesity or opioid epidemic or anything else that we deal with yearly, I believe the difference, at least in the states, is that people don't feel safe. And so when you're looking at the global marketplace and you see, and I say marketplace because I'm in marketing, so excuse me, but in the, on the global landscape, you see that the numbers for the virus has actually dropped in, in China where it was the hotbed. So what are they doing and what are they not teach, telling us here? So that element of feeling safe would increase that anxiety being present or not. I think that what you're saying is we want to feel safe above everything else. Right. But again, go back to the original part of the conversation. Okay, so I mean, I'm somebody who thinks what we're doing is a complete disaster from a medical standpoint. I think most people would agree with that. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. we are probably way overreacting to this. Again, there's way more deaths that are occurring right now from influenza and drug problems. So mm-hmm. I'm not mitigating the magnitude of this problem because I'm taking it seriously. I don't want to spread it on. But once you have done what you can do, then again, it's a learned skill, not do positive thinking, but understanding that you have to use the tools to lower your stress chemicals that helps your immune system. So, again, taking regular precautions is what it is. But the worrying about things that you have no control of cranks up the immune system in a way that actually is very detrimental. Depending on, for instance, I wrote a website post called Can Expressive Writing Help by the Coronavirus? And the answer is yes, because they found out in the 80s with the HIV epidemic that well, what would happen to expressive writing would actually decrease the viral load. They know that sleep has a tremendous effect on the immune system. So, again, you can't pretend the problem isn't there. I mean, my goodness, we've got human trafficking, we have global starvation, we have climate change. I mean, the problems we have are monumental. They've always been monumental throughout the human race. At least we don't live in the Inquisition times. But, you mm-hmm. know I mean, it's always been there. And so, again, mm-hmm. that's the key about separating your personal identity and peace of mind from the external circumstances. So, whatever way you do it, is going to work, but what doesn't work is a positive thing. Is so, yeah, we have a major problem, and I'm going to keep learning what I can do about it. But I've got to let go of the fact that I can't control this because right now we're stuck in the pandemic. But what about climate change? What about right. terrorists having nuclear bombs? I mean, what you'll find out is this pandemic goes away tomorrow. Where does their brains go back to? Climate change. Right. <laughs> so again, the problem is the worrying. The human condition's always been vulnerable. I mean, I'll say the elephant in the room is that we are going to die. <clears throat> and again, you've heard the saying, you can't really live until you accept dying. Mm-hmm. Because what happens, of course, is you worry about dying, yet you can actually enjoy your day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have to get my head around the fact personally. I do my own expressive writing. I do little meditation exercises. I'm trying to exercise as much as I can. I'm definitely working on sleep. And then the corollary of not discussing your pain, by the way, is, again, I turn on the news about 15 to 30 minutes a day just to catch up on the facts, look at the New York Times. But I would strongly encourage people not to spend much time looking at the news. Mm-hmm. As you know, it just gets you agitated and frustrated. You're already in the house anyway. You're not doing much socially. Mm-hmm. So why do that to your immune system? Well, back up for one second because you said you exercise as much as you can. 
and it made me think of uh, that was a, a dating hack in that if I was arguing with, with the girl I was dating and we would go to the park and walk and do like a lap around the park, by the time we finished that lap, we forgot what we were arguing about. Right. And, you know, I think we're both older and being old in, in our <laughs> – the young whippersnappers. But anyway – we were more active, right? And so with, with the teenagers and their sedentary lifestyles and not being outside to even enjoy the beach, as you mentioned earlier, does that also contribute to elevated stress levels? Oh, tremendously. I mean, I think there's lots of reasons for teenage anxiety. And I find it ironic that, of course, we have more opportunities than we've ever had in our life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in countries that don't have a teenage culture, they don't have a lot of teenage problems we have. In other words, people go out into the fields, work with their fathers and mothers like now. They don't have a lot of the stuff that we have here in the, in the United States as far as chronic pain. So it's a culture that sort of begets itself. It keeps itself going, right? It feeds on itself. And so, you know, obviously, you go. I mean, I still think the driving force behind teenage anxiety, I mean, the social media, all sorts of other stuff, the bullying, which I think is abominable, but the bottom line is what drove me into the ground was this perfectionism mode where there's a sequence of anger, which is circumstance, blame, victim, anger. If perfectionism in your mind is the goal, you're always a victim of less than perfect, the situation being less than perfect. You blame it, then you're a victim of less than perfect, and you're always frustrated. Okay, so right now the expectations that we have on teenagers or they put on themselves or from their parents, etc., is an endless goal of be the tall, all that you can be, but you can't get there. It's not possible. So Dr. David Burns' book, Feeling Good, pointed out really clearly that the difference between your concept of perfection and who you are is your degree of unhappiness. And I also would encourage to people look at my Psychology Today post. If you go to my website, you'll see a link to Psychology Today. It says, view all the articles. I wrote a post called The Myth of Self-Esteem, and again, it's a whole different topic, but it was the most read post I've had ever. It was really 60,000 hits in about a week. And basically, the bottom line is this, uh, your self-esteem is a mental construct. It's that blue ring that we talked about. It tries to keep you out of the red ring, and it doesn't work because, again, you're putting your personal self-worth at the mercy of external circumstances, you're at the mercy of those circumstances, especially other people's opinions. Mm-hmm. So it's a learned, and I don't even like the word self-acceptance, but learning to assimilate anxiety into your life allows you to get into the center and move forward in a very powerful, deliberate way. So the other problem with, um, I think the second biggest problem with the whole teenage anxiety, aside from expectations, is the helicopter parenting because you and I both know that when you know how to deal with your own challenges in life, you just feel good about that. It's similar. Do you snow ski at all by chance? Have you ever snow skied? What's that? Do you ever do you snow ski by chance? I am actually a boarder. I'm on the other side. So as you're the dark side. Anyway, <laughs> um, well, you know, my son's a world class competitive mogul skier. So anyway, but he snowboarded for a year or two. Anyway, but you know, with snowboarding or skiing, that there's a tremendous difference in your capacity to enjoy the hill when you learn how to stop, right? Mm-hmm. You have control. Mm-hmm. And right. same thing in life, you, know, you have all this adversity coming at you, and if your parents are protecting you, it doesn't help. And so letting your kids own their failures early on is a huge issue. And that, this still may be the biggest issue with teen anxiety is that 
If you don't know how to solve your own problems, then you're at the mercy of those problems without the tools, your anxiety is going to go through the ceiling. So I do think that capacity to learn how to deal with adversity head-on and quit running from it is a major factor also. Mm. The other takeaway that I did get from what you were saying, um, um, amongst all, all the other ones that you mentioned, is that you watch TV or the news for like 30 minutes of the day. And right. so how would you uh, – one statement that I love is who does this belong to, right? Because you're thinking all these thoughts. Do, are they your thoughts? Are they everyone else's thoughts? And so how do, we're talking about teens and chronic pain what have you. How do you get these teenagers, because adults are probably just as bad, how do you get the teens to have a diet, a social media diet, for 30 minutes a day? Well, I mean, here's the hardest part about the whole project is that that's why my dream is to put this right there in elementary school on because they're not very hard to learn. And we get this endless cycle going that right now is not very breakable. I mean, I think it's breakable. So when a given teenager starts to work with me, it is phenomenal because their, their, their brain changes very fast. The neuroplastic changes very, very fast. Once they can substitute and say, okay, anxiety is just something I have. It's not who I am. Once they can de-identify with that reaction called anxiety, they change really quickly. I mean, it's phenomenal. And so, yeah, and then I have a daughter who's 29, my son's 35, and as you know, the anxiety is just rampant in this age group. Mm-hmm. And my daughter all the time is talking to her friends. They start the expressive writing and relaxation, and it's amazing because, again, their brains change so much more quickly than adults do. The neuroplasticity does occur to the end of your life. There's no question that neuroplasticity occurs every second throughout your entire life. It just happens faster when, than when you're younger. But let me give you one quick story. There's a girl who's the daughter of a friend of mine who's had chronic pain. She had anxiety starting when she was 10. She began to experience total body pain around age 15. And for 15 years, 20 years, she kept looking and looking and looking and searching and about a year ago, she started to work with me with the book, the website. She started the running exercises. And in about a month, she started to shift. I had to work with another friend of mine who just goes some biofeedback, calming down time exercises, awareness. And by May, her anxiety had dropped 80%. Her pain had dropped 80%. And then over the summer, she had some triggers here and there because you're always going to have these triggers. And by this fall, she was taking on a new job representing our, our career, no pain, minimal anxiety, taking on challenges that she never took before. So it's exciting, and this is a pretty typical story, by the way. What's exciting is that once you quit fighting this physiological thing called anxiety, your creativity comes back, and so people thrive at a level they've never even comprehended before the pain even started. Mm-hmm. That's the fun part. So she now is writing a book. She's got her art career going. It's just phenomenal to watch her go. We see these stories all the time. And I think the difference of what you're talking about with expressive writing as opposed to the law of attraction crowd, and I mean, they may write their goals down, but if you put it up on the wall and you keep looking at it, and wouldn't that increase your anxiety? Like, oh, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet yeah. versus expressive writing where you're writing 10 minutes a day, but then you tear it up. So there is this aspect of letting go that right. would lower your stress levels. Correct. But again, you're yes. not catharsing. You're not getting rid of these things. It's just, a, see, see, to me, for personally, if I quit my expressive writing for about two or three weeks, which I do, 
um, also the skin rashes pop up in the back of my wrist, my ears start to ring, my feet start to burn. So to me, it's like an ongoing thing like brushing your teeth. There's no beginning or end point. The hardest part of this process by far is that people want to fix themselves, right? You want to, be, you mm-hmm. want to become a better person, right? You don't want the pain. Mm-hmm. And this is about connected and engaged thinking because if you're trying to fix yourself, your attention's on the problem, not the solution. So again, it's creating that vision, moving towards it deliberately, getting it organized, becoming skilled at it. Your skills do get better over time. You're going to always be triggered. I mean, there's no beginning or end point to this. But the hardest part of this thing is just letting go and just living your life. Because everything you talked about, the pandemic, the anxiety, the teenage culture, world peace, all this stuff is not solvable. Your, your background, your past, you can't change it. You can analyze the heck out of it, but guess what? It's important to understand it and talk about it once. But there's a tendency, which I did. I was actually in psychotherapy myself for 13 solid years, which had some benefits. I'm not, I don't want to minimize psychotherapy, by the way. But the problem is if it helps you give you wisdom, guidance, and support to move forward, it's great. But there's a tendency, as you probably know, that if, the more you understand the problem, someone's going to fix it. And it's actually the opposite. Mm-hmm. So the more you understand the solution, the better you're going to be. You have to understand the problem enough to solve it. But no, it's moving forward with a vision is what actually solves your chronic mental or physical mm-hmm. pain. No, that, that's a great, great way to uh, cap it. And in addition to that, uh, there's definitely social proof on your site. I mean, one person that I revere is uh, Bruce Lipton. And so you saw the nice platitudes you put on your site. And there, there's such a depth, a depth of, of information on your site. I'd like for you to highlight that again in your book because, I mean, we tried to cover as much as we could in the hour, but again, it was only the hour. So I won't have anxiety because we didn't cover everything based off of lowering my stress level. Right. <laughs> but I'd like for you to highlight your site, your books, and how people get in touch with you. Well, a bunch of things that I'm doing. So I have a podcast every week on Wednesdays. By the way, Dr. Lipton was on it last week. and It'll be on next week. So I have a podcast about a half hour every week of different guests. And Bruce Lipton and I are friends. He lives in Santa Cruz about an hour and a half from me. And just wonderfully warm guy. And I honestly didn't realize how much we were on the same page until we had this conversation on my podcast about two weeks ago. So I have a podcast every week. Um, every Sunday morning, I send out an announcement to the group about a blog I put up every week. And then I blog for psychology today. So all that's found on my website, backincontrol.com. Then the book is Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. The newest book is Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Um, Take Advice from a Surgeon. Is that that book is, what it does is summarizes the whole doc project in about two chapters. So there's some merit to reading that, even if you're not a surgical problem, don't have a surgical problem. But um, anyway, it's sort of a process. Again, the book and website is a framework for people to figure out their own solution. And so, yeah, there's lots of ongoing stuff every week. Again, I quit my practice to get this stuff out there. It just became so abominable to me watching people badly injured by surgery that they didn't need versus people going to pain-free with self-directed interventions. I just had to quit. So I quit about, I quit December 2018 and my wife gives me a hard time. She says, I'm not really retired, and I'm not. I still spend a huge amount of time on this project. But I get emails every week from people all over the country that are just doing so well. So it's hard not to do this. Mm-hmm. 
Here, 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 here. Well, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza and Dr. David Hanscom. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Let's definitely stay in touch. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Thank you. Cheers. So, are are we off now? Hello? Hello? Hello?